Extra Extra, Dawn of Mantis now has a merch store. There are t-shirts, long and short sleeve, as well as hoodies. Just go to dawnofmantis.com and click the t-shirt link. And while you're there, you can check out our Patreon. Quiet your mind. Ever since the Earth has circled the sun, there have been fantastic tales of wonder and mystery that the faint of heart dare not discuss. But three brave, uninformed souls have the brass to tackle every extraordinary happenstance from the modern age to the dawn of Mantis. Welcome to Dawn of Mantis. Joe, how are you today? I'm doing well. How are you? Good. I threw it to you early because I didn't want to talk much anymore at the beginning. No, that's good. I no, like it. I want you to talk. I don't want to talk anymore. Please talk now. Sam, how you doing? I'm good. So circle's complete. We're all good. Triangle. Oh, I guess it's a triangle. It is a triangle. Trifecta. So how's everyone doing out there? Alrighty then. Welcome to part four of our five-part series, Murder in the Mountains. I just figured we'd go right into it because it is a part four, and people are kind of like, hey, we're ready for the next week, you know? Sure. No tomfoolery much, unless someone's got a rant, rave, general grievance, anything like that. I like it, which we will have, at we least will. a couple. We will. So shall we get started? We shall. So, uh, as we've been saying kind of at the beginning of all these, uh, you know, I'm assuming that whoever is listening to this now has listened to parts one through three. Yes. So I don't want to do any recaps. No recaps. All right. So uh, Bronco then tracked down Sharon Russo, who was living in Florida, and re-interviewed her. Who's Sharon? Sharon no, Russo. No, I'm, I'm, I'm messing with her. That was a joke. <laughs> go back to parts one through oh, three. Okay. There we go. The new interviews scared up new tips. Uh, he was told the Bronco had been hidden behind a barn near the Timber Steakhouse right in Mayo. Uh, I just find it funny that... The guy's name's Bronco, and he's looking, you know, yeah. for Bronco. Yeah. There's a lot of Bronco in this. Yeah. Story. It made it confusing. We hope you like the Broncos out there. Yeah. It well, made it a little confusing. Can you bring in the football team somehow? No, I mean, I, I guess can. they're kind of far away. Denver, yeah. They were playing the Lions um, sometime around this. There okay, go. there we go. So as Bronco was looking for the Bronco, he was watching the Broncos. Okay. I'm sure someone was at some point. <laughs> One of those sports bars. Yeah. Hey, maybe this was the, uh, you know, the... Timber Steakhouse, right there in Mayo. That was a sports bar where they were watching the Broncos. I'm sure at some point. So there we go. We, <laughs> we made the connection. That's what we do here. Important connections we make. Yeah. Confusing connections. Yes. Uh, but, you know, they the, the rumor that he heard was that the Bronco, the vehicle. Okay. Was, yeah, you have to clarify now. Was parked out there to that day. Oh. Bronco immediately. Bronco the guy. <laughs> Damn, you guys. <laughs> Bronco the man immediately drove out to look, and after a long and racist diatribe from the current landowner, was finally allowed to search inside and behind the old barns and on the property for Bronco the vehicle. Wait, did you say racist? Wait, that's what I yeah. thought, too. Yeah. A long and racist diatribe. Oh, yeah, that's yeah, That's what yeah. it said. Yeah. Which, Bronco's sense. a white guy, so I don't even know how race was brought into it. Some people just go on and on about it. I wonder what he was driving. Yeah. <laughs> probably, yeah. Like a, probably like a blazer. Or something. Oh, oh, how ironic! Bronco drives a blazer and wears a blazer. Oh, yeah, surely not. 
So Long, yeah, Long racist diatribe from the landowner. Finally let him look. He didn't find it. And still, after every dead end, Bronco, the guy, would give the Till and Ogenen families a call. He'd let them know that the latest tip hadn't panned out, but always followed it up with an encouraging word and a promise to never give up. Both families grew to love Bronco, the guy, and even considered him family by the time it was over. Huh? <laughs> it's because you assholes that I have to do that now with them. Well, no, <laughs> it's, it's all the assholes listening. I mean, I feel like you're doing it. No, cut that out. No. No, that's good. Our people can take it. Okay. Then on March 3rd, 1999, Bronco, the guy, got a call from a woman named Ruth Fawcett. Her friend Barb Klemek had told her about working at a bar one night in 1985 when a big fight had broke out between some deer hunters and some locals. And when is this? What year is this that she remembers this happening? Uh, 99. So 14 years later. Yeah. How does like, okay? I'm I know wa- what you're gonna I'm say. Watching, Go okay, I, and I I texted you guys yesterday. I think it was, and I was like, "Hey, I just started watching The Killing Fields on Discovery Plus, mm-hmm. and it's a cold case that's been reopened like many years later. They're going back and revisiting like different people that had like maybe seen her, you know, that evening or whatever. And I'm like, how do you, like? And how many years after the fact is this? How could they remember, especially details? 14 yeah. years later, those details like that. Yeah, I might remember a fight, maybe, but 14 years ago? I mean, right. it would have to be something awful specific. Now, this could help her story a little bit. It could be like she saw the fight, and then about a month later, she heard about the those guys were missing. Yeah. And so then that, like, then that, like, lodges in her head. She's like, okay, well... Then, then she doesn't forget that. Yeah. But scientifically, here's the thing. I can listen to one of these episodes that we did two months ago, and I'm almost completely surprised by <laughs> 99% of things that I said and right. 100% of things that you guys said. <laughs> right. So, I mean, I'm not going to read what happened in episode 123. I don't know. Yeah. We started, and I said... You know, hello, how's everyone doing? And then that uh, the rest is a mystery. Yeah. Oh, yeah, like right right as we were starting this podcast, Ken messaged me and said, hey, I just listened to the Connie Converse episode. And I was like, oh, that's a good one. And I'm, <laughs> I think it is. I, I don't remember anything about it, really. I mean, I remember a few details about her case. Did we play we, some music in that one? Yeah. Did we pipe some music in? Yeah, she was kind of like a female Bob Dylan before. Wait, that was wasn't one. here, though. No. no, no, that was long that was, ago. See, I didn't even remember where we recorded see, I like, it. I don't even know about that one. <laughs> yeah, that was a ways back. Uh, we did the Connie Converse episode January 9th, 2019. It was episode 16. Oh, so it wasn't here. <laughs> <laughs> That's how far off I was. That's what I'm trying to say. Only by two memory, and a half years. And I, I'll, I'll admit, my memory is not the greatest. It's declining rapidly but you know if you ask me about a a bar fight 14 years ago i'd be like i i don't know was it you know i don't know much and yet some really super weird random things you will remember it's weird what our brains will catch on to like like i can remember being four years old in detroit michigan and our next door neighbor weedy stepped on a fire ant hill and he was screaming and his mom came i remember that as clear as day i've talked about it on this podcast before you know why do i remember that only, yeah, he only has four stories, and that was one of them. That was one. <laughs> I, you know, I don't think I've told this before, and it may not be interesting, but I think about it often. I remember my first memory 
when I was a kid, I was about five years old. I remember being outside and I remember thinking about memories and stuff. Hey, I remember that happened. I remember this happened. And I, and I was like, I'm going to remember this and make it my first memory. I remember thinking that. Really? And I was outside like digging around. It was like before we built our, we lived in a little trailer house and we took that away and we built a house next to it. So I had to be like five years old because I've kind of done the math on it. But But I remember thinking like, I should, you know, because I asked, and like, I think my grandma, she was there and I asked her when her first memory was. She said, well, I guess I was about seven years old. And I was like, and I was five and I was like, well, I'm going to remember this as my first memory. That's so and that And that really is one of my first memories I remember, like kind of vividly. Yeah. Because I guess I made, in some brain researcher would say, hey, that's because he made like a, some kind of mental note and like gave it like provenance or gave it like importance. Right. You know, I don't know. I just, that's just, I think about that a lot because I can't think about any further. That's crazy. Yeah. Do you remember after they, did they build that other house so close to that trailer house that when they pulled the trailer house out, <laughs> it, it was like grinding against the, the new house? I, I didn't care if my windows was next to my sister's window because I couldn't, I couldn't stand her at that time. So, uh, no, <laughs> that's, that's, that's funny. That's a callback, folks. That's a callback. You have to go back to the last episode. Was that the last? Yeah, that's yeah. the last episode. No, two episodes ago. Two episodes ago. See, I can't even remember that. <laughs> but I can remember when I was five years old. So, yeah, Barb Klemek. Now, let's remember that name, especially the first name, because she changes her last name later, as women are sometimes known to do. But uh, she had told this Ruth Fawcett about, you know, her story of her working at a bar in 1985 when a fight broke out between hunters and locals. We, this is the same theme of the story that we've heard now from, from several people. Okay. She then said that Barb had seen one of the locals make a few calls and that soon several more men showed up. Then an all-out brawl ensued and someone told Barb to leave the bar and go home. She said the next day, one of these same locals knocked on her door and threatened her to never say a word about what she'd seen. It had scared Barb to death and she had told Ruth that she would never cooperate with the police because she was too afraid of what would happen to her. Now, by this time, this same song and dance had been repeated dozens of times to Bronco, the guy. More gossip about this legendary fight between the hunters and locals. Yes, we've heard it before. Then they killed him. Then they fed him the pigs. Of course, it's just more rumors. Stop wasting time. Well, the next day, Bronco, the guy, traveled to Mayo and started searching for Barb to try to get her story. Like, straight from the horse's mouth, right? I didn't mean to call her a horse. Bronco's mouth. (laughs) There you go. Oh, wait, no, not. (laughs) He only vaguely knew where she was now supposedly living and had to knock on several doors before finally reaching a small house at the end of a long driveway. He knocked on the door. A woman opened. He said, hello, I'm Detective Bronco Lesneski, the guy, and I'm working the missing hunter's case. Are you Barb Klemek? Technically, I don't. I don't think you had to insert it there, but it made it sound like that's what he said. The guy, I'm yeah. Detective Bronco, the vehicle. It's like what is this? Cars four? <laughs> yeah, the sheriff is a Bronco. He's got like a mustache over his grill. <sighs> Technically, she was not Barb Klemek. She now went by Barb Boudreaux, but this was who he had come to talk to. The woman winced at the question and began to shake uncontrollably before exclaiming, you're going to get me killed, and slamming the door. However, Bronco thrust his foot, I don't know why I went, he thrust his foot inside, I hadn't done an accent in a minute, so it was, it was I'm having withdrawals. No, you're good. He thrust his foot inside the door just before it shut, which technically, I think that's illegal. He forced his way inside. Ooh, that's illegal. May I come in? He again asked, and she replied, you're going to get me killed. <laughs> this lead was definitely not the typical dead end, right? 
After some more convincing, Barb finally let him in the house. After even more convincing, she started to talk. Oh. By convincing, I mean waterboarding. Sad thing. <laughs> no, that, that didn't happen. Sad thing is, because he stuck his foot in the door, maybe that could all be thrown out of court. Like, maybe. as, like, you know, inadmissible. Due to forced entry or something? Yeah. Yep. Maybe you're right. Well, the first thing she said was, I didn't like those two hunters, and they deserved to get their asses kicked, but they didn't deserve to die. Remember, Barb was the one with a big, nice, delicious booty that they kept touching and slapping, you know. That was her words. Oh, okay. Then she then retold the same tale that uh, Bronco, the guy, and every other investigator on the case had heard a hundred times by now, except this time there was at least a few new details. Two drunk hunters talking shit to a barmaid. A couple of the Duval brothers confronted them, and there was almost a fight then and there, but said barmaid intervened and threatened to call the cops. So the Duvals backed off and made a couple phone calls for backup. They then handed Barb a six-pack of beer and told her to beat it. <laughs> so she did, although her house was less than a mile from the bar, walking distance, really close. A little while later, she said she heard screaming coming from the woods, somewhere between her house and the bar. Lots of screaming. Then the screaming stopped, and not long after that, someone knocked on her door. She answered it, and they said, if you don't keep your mouth shut, we'll feed you to the pigs, too. Oh. Mm-hmm. She's like, how many beers is it going to take to keep me quiet? <laughs> More than six. Tell you what, you bring me back a case and promise not to touch my heavenly booty, you got a deal. I won't go. say anything. That's probably what it was. 18-pack, at least. <laughs> That's what I've got under this shirt right here. <laughs> anyway, she ended the interview by proclaiming she would never go on the record with her information because the Duvals would kill her and her grandkids if she did. Killed. Bronco left <laughs> Bronco left her his number and urged her to contact him if she ever changed her mind. Well, guess what? Didn't take long. Yeah. Just a little foot in the door and a little conversing you know that's yeah guilty conscience well yeah and yeah I, yeah and it, you know how long it took guess how long it took 10 minutes a couple hours you're oh, close okay. you were you were being facetious but that was close how was i close well i mean you know i thought you were going to say like four years you want you want to hang out with some annoying person for 10 minutes or two hours <laughs> I, I think i'm way off i think i'm way off but it's, it's, it's you being nice, man. Do you want to have cool. Tom Selleck's beautiful body make love to you for 10 minutes or two hours? I Either get or. <laughs> I mean, it's irrelevant. <laughs> I'm good either way. <laughs> Just a few hours later, Barb called uh, to tell Bronco she was ready to talk. They set up a meeting, but she got cold feet and canceled last minute. Mm. This process repeated several times until the pair finally met up again, and this time she provided a little more detail. Why didn't Bronco take the little tape recorder? Uh, you know, I think she wouldn't have even have spoken at that. Oh, uh, probably, yeah. Know. I was just like, yeah, I'll talk. It's like, yeah, it's like she wanted to talk so badly, but it took her so long, you know, to just like let out a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. She'd been playing pool that night at Linkers. We're back to, back to the story. Or she's still partying, huh? Still partying. She was, she was playing pool that night at Linkers. She had brought her phenomenal derriere to Linkers, and they were both playing pool. And David Till had groped said beautiful booty, right? Mm -hmm. 
She was furious, she said, and she said that before in other stories. And a little while later, while sitting with the Duvals, she told them what happened. And then she said, those hunters need their asses kicked. Oh, I misunderstood. I thought you meant, I thought you went present, we're present day, but you're still talking about the old, yeah, I got Yeah, she's recalling the 1985 night. No, it's all good. I was in the wrong timeline. The other witness, Ronnie Emery, who she'd been drinking with, had went back to her place with her and had also heard the screaming in the woods after all this went down. However, now Barb added that Ronnie had snuck out of the trailer and made his way through the trees to see what exactly was happening. He returned as white as a ghost. Said there was a whole group of men beating the hunters, beating them to death with ball bats. Even after they stopped moving, they kept beating. The bats bouncing off their skulls made the same pinging sound as when they would hit a home run, he said. Whoa. Barb had even claimed she could faintly hear the pinging from the house. Bronco asked if he could speak with Ronnie. Impossible. He had died a few years ago. It was supposed to have been some sort of suicide. He'd been found on the highway with his head as flat as a pancake. A lot of people around this story die. Yeah. Barb and a lot of other people knew better, but of course they kept quiet. Barb said that she once had even agreed to be hypnotized to try to remember more about what happened that night, but her therapist committed suicide before the session took place. People just dropping like flies around at that time. She also said something that really got under Bronco's skin. She had told this story to law enforcement before, although not officially. This is where it gets a little funky. Years earlier, Bob had had an affair with an Oscata County Sheriff's deputy, and it happened to be our old buddy Dick Smith. You remember Dick? We brought him up last time. We brought Dick up last time. Yes. Oh, yeah, I got you. I understand. <laughs> Heard you the first time. Barb had told him the story several times, but he always seemed to blow her off. So did Barb's booty. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, she was a notorious drunk back then, but the details of her story should have picked Dick's interests. Hmm. Dick knew all about the case and had even saw the black Bronco leaving the ditch that night. Remember, if you guys will remember, back a few episodes ago. The night he decided it was too cold and too late to check it out. In fact, the only time Barb ever got him to talk about it, he dropped a bombshell on her. There had been a call earlier that night, something about a confrontation between some hunters and some locals at Linker's Lodge. And he didn't go. No. Looked like it was going to get violent, so Smith had ignored it. Too cold, too late, he said, and he hated breaking up bar fights. Could this have been the fight between David, Brian, and the Duvals? Obviously, Bronco paid Smith, who was still living in Mayo, a visit right away. He admitted to seeing the Bronco and neglecting to pull it over, but didn't admit to ignoring the call about the fight in front of Linker's Lodge. Is that one of those things, like, wanted to protect that cop type of thing, you think? I think so, yeah. Yeah, and, and I'm not being, I'm not, I don't mean anything broader than this, one case i'm not i'm not jumping on any kind of bandwagon i'm just saying that sounds like somebody messed up and then they didn't pursue it or they kind of covered for him in a way because yeah. he yeah he had said that uh in an interview that a lot of times those fights just kind of work themselves out well i will say <laughs> that well i mean let's say that happens a hundred times there might only be a murder once or twice you know so yeah that's like or maybe once it's like yeah, he's probably right. I mean, he's probably ignored it before and after that, and it didn't turn up to be a murder. Yeah. I mean, I've seen stuff like that go down, and it's 
I rarely ever think there's going to be a murder. I usually just think someone's going to go home with a bloody nose. Right. Right. Yeah. Which is logical. That's yeah. what does happen most of the time. Yeah. It's crazy. It's just like the, when I was driving by uh, River Reds, the story I told where the old men were out mm. rolling around. Like, come on. So I, I get it. Especially if, men imagine the fights that these cops were probably called out on. You know, like just rowdy folks getting drunk. I bet there were thousands of fights that they got called out on where they were eventually just like, ugh. It seemed like suspicious deaths were almost commonplace in those parts. Which brings up another interesting part of the story. Eileen Seitz, remember her? Mm -hmm. She was one of JR's many exes and had been with him for 10 years and had two kids with him. Many figured she had known all about the hunters, but like we said, she had been murdered by her husband, Nelson Bolzman. Well, not long after the interviews with Barb, Bronco got a call. Nelson was still in prison, obviously, for killing her. He wanted to talk now. Turns out Nelson had proclaimed his innocence since day one and had claimed the Duvals had killed Eileen, not him. Mm -hmm. Why? Because of what she knew about the missing hunters. That's why. Oh, okay. Eileen's body was found lying in the middle of a dirt road by the shack that JR had been living in at the time. It was supposed to look like she had been ran over, which she had been, but the medical examiner had determined she had been strangled to death first. Who gets run over on a dirt road, though? People are going 20. I mean, I think you could just... I don't know. I, I think the stats would be incredibly low on that. Maybe. I don't know. The dirt road plus, I used to live on assholes drove 60. Yeah, yeah but plus yeah. you hear them coming for like ever. You see the If they're going fast... <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I might want to move out of the middle of the road. see a dust cloud. I guess if you're on the edge, you could get hit, knocked into the thing, and then you could be a Ray Brower, but that was a train track. Train tracks, yes, yeah, sir. But, still, but you can hear a train coming. coming a hell of a lot further away than a car on a dirt yeah, road. Yeah, what was that How'd kid that happen? And they didn't have iPod, ear, earbuds back then, Ray Brower. How far up your ass was your own head that you didn't hear that train coming, Ray Brower? Yeah. I don't know why I'm getting so upset about a movie that happened 35 years ago. That was fictitious in the first place. I don't even care that he died now. <laughs> I actually did. Had it coming, that Ray Brower. Had it coming. I can't wait. I, I, I showed Mariah that movie. I can't wait till I get to show Sagan. I, that's just one of those, like, you know, aside from your point. It's like, this is a great movie to oh. watch with your kids when they're old enough and it doesn't score. That movie them. is more special to me than yeah. my kids. Like, I would take, <laughs> wow. if someone said you could never see Stand By Me again or you could never see your children again, give me that movie. Give me the movie. <laughs> that's how much the I point of the movie, movie then. <laughs> You're the dad. <laughs> You're Gordy's dad. <laughs> You're a dick. Hey, I was just kidding. I know, I know. A jury then determined it had been by Nelson Bolzman's hands. Mm. This account lent a lot more credit to Barb's story. And even better, Nelson said he had actually met David and Brian. He said he'd met them at a deer camp near Mayo on opening season, 1985. He said they were furious because they'd went into a bar to drink the night before and their rifles had been stolen out of their Bronco. He said they claimed it was Duval's who had done that, although they didn't know how to prove it. They then said they were returning home since they didn't have anything to hunt with. Sounds all well and good except one thing. Although the guys had planned on heading out on opening weekend, they had canceled last minute and decided to leave on the following Friday, the 22nd. So this was exactly a week off. Big problem. Still, the circumstances of Eileen's death were interesting, and there could be more there. But that was the case with almost every lead. There could be more there. It was indescribably frustrating, and Bronco was getting sick of it. He began to use psychological tactics on the Duvals. 
All previous investigators had given a heads up before coming out to talk, but Bronco started showing up at JR's house often and at all hours. Any spare moment he got, he would head to Mayo just to be seen, just to let everyone know he was there and looking around. The heat is still on, you boys. Heat is on. Very good. So yeah, he was he was just haunting Mayo all the time, and then you know he would show up there and have lunch, and sometimes he would see uh, you know some of the extended family members of the Duvals or their acquaintances, and he would loudly ask, "Hey, how's Coco and Jr.? Tell them Bronco said hi." Oh, Bronco! Bronco, the guy. I mean, I like Bronco the car. I don't like Bronco the guy. <laughs> and I like the, the the football team, too. I do, too. But screw that cop. Yeah, that's the only Bronco I don't like. <laughs> Horses are good, too. He, Oh, yeah, we keep forgetting that. He wanted to create paranoia amongst the family, and it was working. Mm-hmm. He also figured a strong police presence would let people know that this thing was going to get solved eventually, no matter how hard they tried to stop it. And that might help some people to finally feel comfortable enough to talk. And mm-hmm. that worked. All right. We're getting somewhere now. More leads came in. In April, someone called to say their brother had been living in Mayo back in 85 and was having an affair with the wife of some chop shop thief in the area. Okay. He had been at the woman's house engaging in certain activities, that's code for having sex with her, while her husband was supposed to be gone for the night. But in the, I don't know why I wrote it that way if I was just going to say it that way. I know, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> certain activities. <laughs> But in the early morning hours, they heard a group of cars pull up. Shitting his pants, the guy thought the husband was home, which he was. But the cars, which included a black Bronco around an 80 model, headed past the house and drove into the woods. Mm. So he's like, maybe I won't get killed. Bronco and a team spent days searching the property and digging around and had found just about everything you could imagine except for a black Ford Bronco. Mm. Months of silence followed this. Until a, a call came in on March 3rd, 2000. So now we're in the damn 2000s, and this thing still ain't solved. Not from a tipster, but from a Detroit attorney on behalf of a tipster wanting to know how to go about getting paid that $116,000 in reward money and still stay anonymous for as long as possible. There's two things I can't stand. It's a hipster and a tipster. Unless <laughs> it's for money. That's true. And you could see why, right? Because family to feed. If there's anything I hate, it's people who are insensitive of other people's cultures and the Dutch. The tipster gave an obviously fake name of Johnny Force. And there is a John Force, though, who was a, 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 like a car driver. A car driver. He was like a, like a funny car driver. What do you call that? Like a, not NASCAR. They didn't drive in circles. They just drove down a straight lane for a really short amount of time. Oh, you mean like drag strip? Drag strip drivers. Jesus Christ. So, yeah, he calls with the fake name of Johnny Force, uh, calls up Bronco and claims that an old friend of his had confessed to killing the two hunters while he and another buddy were high on acid out in the woods hunting that weekend. Jesus Christ. Is that deer wearing a spacesuit, man? (laughs) Like, why would you hunt on acid? Mm, I don't know. Doesn't seem counterintuitive. Yeah. Bronco tracked the guy down, arrested him on an outstanding warrant, and grilled him about the hunters. The guy eventually broke down and admitted that he had made the whole thing up to impress his friends and begged to take a polygraph test to prove it. He took the test and passed. It had been a false confession. No reward money for you, Johnny Force. Oh, man. Yeah. Johnny Farce. (laughs) Yes! 
That's great. Why didn't I? Oh, Ivan, you never cease to amaze me. That's why he's here. You are good friends. I only hang out with high caliber people like Sam and Ivan. No, I'm getting to a point. It here. takes a Johnny Farce comment, and you're like, "That's why I hang out with you." No, 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 no. I had a, I had a different. Point. That's low. That's low bar, man. I'm going to be Kirk Cameron and circumnavigate. Oh no. Logic. My point was that I don't hang out with people who'd be impressed if I said I killed a couple guys. Hi, Sam and Ivan. Before we start this podcast, I just want to let you know that uh, back in the, the the late '90s, I killed a guy. You got, and then both of you would be like. We automatically have a lot more respect for you. <laughs> that is awesome. Like a lot of clout. Just your clout yeah. meter just increased. I don't know anyone personally that's ever killed someone, so that would be kind of cool. You, yeah. It's mysterious. Yeah. You just got sexier, Joe. That's what you guys would tell me. Yeah. Your sex appeal, just like you guys are both straight, but you would be questioning that if I told you I, sure. I killed it. Be like, oh, I'm not sure. I guess I'm going to have to <laughs> Google some stuff. <laughs> Dawn of Mantis is brought to you by Redbeard Sound. Redbeard Sound provides music production, audio editing, and live sound engineering, and is where Dawn of Mantis records our podcast. You can find Sam's information on our website, dawnofmantis.com, or at redbeardsound.com. Quiet your mind. In October of 2000, another tip! Connie Sunberg's boss had overheard her telling someone about the two hunters who had gotten to a scuffle with some guys and ended up getting killed. Also, there was a black Bronco that had belonged to one of the hunters, and her boyfriend had driven it around a couple days before it vanished. Nothing we didn't already know. There's so many tips. So many tips. So I should have named this series just the tip. <laughs> you know? Because it's there's so many. I'm looking at you, Sam. Mm-hmm. <laughs> The next month marked the 15th anniversary of the disappearance and almost certain deaths of Brian Ogenen and David Till. Media attention was aroused again, and several spots were ran wow. on multiple... Great timing. <laughs> several spots were ran on multiple TV stations about the case. As usual, a slew of new tips came in, and as usual, <laughs> none stood out. <sighs> How many tips is that now? Tip A, tip B. I bet we're on Q-tip by now. <laughs> Sorry, that's so lame. I hate even that I said that, but it's out that's there That's a now. great dad joke, man. Yeah, it is. It is. Just more people who either heard directly from the Duvals or from someone who had overheard the Duvals talking about killing the two hunters. Again, to be so paranoid of being caught, the brothers seemed to jump at the chance to tell literally anyone and everyone about their crime over the years. Like if hence get, the tips. Hence the tips. Yeah. So many tips. Yeah. I'm surprised they didn't like rent radio ad time on a local <laughs> station. Like as, as soon as Tom Petty's song is over, it's like, uh, hey, this is uh, J.R. Duvall. Just want to let everyone know we killed the shit out of those two hunters back a few years ago. Uh, pretty badass. Yeah. So if you want to see me and like get an autograph or something, meet me down at Linker's Lodge. And if you're a cop, I plead the fifth. <laughs> if you're a cop, just kidding. Yeah. So, yeah, man, they just told everybody, I guess, apparently. The next tip came in from an unlikely source. J.R. Du Goddamn Vol himself. Oh. Hmm. And this one, guys, was a barn burner. Okay. 
He'd been arrested for non-payment of child support to the tune of $45,000. No. It's almost like he wasn't a great guy. You rounded up. There's no way. (laughs) (laughs) I wonder how many kids that is. Yeah. What if it's just one kid's entire life? That's true. Could be. Well, I mean, if it was in 2000, could be. Could be. Yeah. yeah, but it could be 17 kids and his income is shit. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so <they> can't get... <laughs> you know? It's like... That's true. 10 bucks... I mean, a lot, of, a lot of Netflix accounts add up, right? So it's like 10 bucks here, 10 bucks there. 10 if, bucks... if you ever get hit for child support, you'd be like, that's like 120 <laughs> Netflix. Yeah. <laughs> this bullshit. Your honor. I can't even afford Netflix now. <laughs> and then I got to get the one... With the low buffering. That's come on. Come on, man. <laughs> My quality of life is nose diving right now. Yes. Yes. That'll be my defense. <laughs> the judges will be like, you don't need Netflix. You need to be playing with your kids. Oh, yeah. Or paying for them. <laughs> Either play with them or pay for them. Come on, man. Buck up. So, yeah, they, they arrest him for uh, a non-payment of child support, $45,000. And that combined with several other offenses. What? Yeah. Was mounting up some jail time that JR did not want to do. So he called Bronco on November 23rd, 2001, 16 years to the day from when David and Brian went missing. I'm sorry, from when they went to Mayo, because we don't mm-hmm. know exactly what day. Yeah. Uh, and said he had some information about the missing hunters. Bronco was sure as shit he did it, but doubted he was going to confess... And he was right. Instead, Jr. had some BS story about some dope dealers he knew who had left town right after the hunters vanished. Maybe it was a drug deal gone bad and they'd killed the hunters and fled the area, he said. Yeah. Obviously, Bronco didn't buy it and replied, You mean to tell me that you, being the number one suspect in the missing hunters case for all these years, had this information and that could have exonerated you and you're just now telling me about it? It kind of implicates him to me. Yeah. I'd just forgotten about it till recently. He then basically told JR not to call again if he was going to waste his time before leaving. So now a few months more pass, and it was time to talk to another familiar name in the case again, Connie Sunberg. At this time, she was living in West Virginia with an ex she'd gotten back together with, and it uh, uh, seemed like she'd wanted uh, to talk a little bit more to Bronco. Okay. She told Bronco that she hadn't given him the full story before, something he already knew. Uh, She said not only had Coco threatened her when she asked about the missing hunters, he had flown into a rage and beaten her badly. She also said that any time she'd bump into JR, he would ask, you been talking to the cops? Then he would threaten to keep her quiet. Mm, Kept it going for years and years, I guess. Nobody better talk about us telling y'all about killing them hunters. By the way, who wants to hear hear that story again? Who wants to hear this story again? Really? All right. Here, come here. Everybody gather around. <laughs> yeah, Here's no what one, we did. No one should tell this amazing story I'm about to retell. <laughs> and when he's done, he's like, TM. No one else can tell that story. Yeah. They did They did a whole podcast about the how they murdered the guys. <laughs> so it's now 2002. And although all he had was circumstantial evidence, he had a literal mountain of it. And uh, Bronco went to Oscotta County Prosecutor Barry Shantz to talk about issuing warrants for J.R., Coco, and maybe more of the Duval brothers. Who knows, if they were under arrest for the murders, maybe they'd be intimidated into talking. Also, with the brothers in jail, maybe others wouldn't be as afraid and would be more willing to talk. However, as prosecutors often do, Chance was shy to pull the trigger, citing a lack of concrete evidence. Convinced there was enough for warrants, 
Bronco went over Shantz's head and called the Michigan State Attorney General's office and spoke to Mark Bloomer, head of the criminal division. Bloomer had previously been involved in the case and also knew Bronco, the guy. He said to send over everything he had on the case to the AG office and he would review it. It was the surge that Bronco had hoped for, but he didn't stop there. Over the next few days, he called the Central Intelligence Unit of the Michigan State Police, the U.S. Forest Service, and even the FBI looking for more help on the case. On August 21st, Mark Bloomer called Bronco to let him know the Attorney General's office was taking the case. This was huge. Investigative subpoenas are a lot more heavy-handed than a simple interview with a cop because there's threat of perjury if you lie. It was time to start instilling some fear in people with this new elevated level of seriousness and to start rounding up people to testify against the Duvals if and when a court proceeding occurred. And Bronco already had his first witness lined up. Can you take a guess? She's got the nicest ass in Mayo! Boudreaux. Barb Boudreaux. But But he knew how these things worked. He'd have Barb testify, and the defense would try to destroy her credibility on cross-examination. With Barb, this was actually a worry. She had been a notorious party girl and barfly for many years. You know what else she was known for? What's that? That sweet behind. She had also had the affair with uh, Sergeant Dick Smith, which was now something that needed to be looked into a little closer. Bronco paid a visit to current Oscada County Sheriff Michael Larison. Larison had worked with Smith back in 85, and Bronco was curious what he'd have to say about him. He actually said a lot. Larison knew about the affair with Barb, along with everyone else. Despite the fact that Smith's work logs always claimed he had been all over the county during his long night shifts, most of the time he drove straight to Barb's house, hit his patrol car in her backyard, and spent the night with her. Larison even confirmed the rumor early one morning when he staked out Barb's house. Sure enough, just before daylight, he witnessed Smith sneak out of the back door and into a squad car before uh, easing it out onto the road, waiting until he was a few hundred feet away and turning on his headlights. After that, Smith was permanently demoted to working the radio desk until he quit the force not long after. Larison said Smith was a shyster and he wouldn't believe a word he said. Oh, wow. Tricky dick. Yeah. Naturally, it was now time to talk to Smith, and Bronco went knocking on his door on September 12th. The story he got from Smith was at least partial BS, but perhaps had some truth in it as well. He admitted to the affair with Barb, but immediately started attacking her character, saying she was always a crazy drunk who you couldn't believe a word from. But my God, did she have a cute butt. <laughs> did she? That's, and people are going to get so sick of that. I'm sorry. I just allegedly. Can't. Allegedly. I, allegedly. I believe it when I see it. Well, we're painting a picture here, so go ahead and keep painting that picture. It's like, are you really Barb Boudreaux, ma'am? You must testify before the court. We need to see some identification. Please turn around. <laughs> Oh, that's Barb, all right. Look at this. Look at that. They did a lineup at the police station with yeah. a bunch of butts. Oh, it's it's second from the left. You could bounce a quarter off that thing. That's Barb. Turn around. Ah, I told you it was Barb. See? It's Barb. I know that keister anywhere. <laughs> I don't know why he was... 30s. <laughs> organized crime. Yeah. <laughs> Frank Nitty showed back up. Yeah. The... <laughs> this is exactly what Bronco was afraid Smith would say on the witness stand as well to destroy her credibility. Smith also claimed Barb had tried to commit suicide and had briefly gone to a mental facility. Unfortunately, this turned out to be true as well. The Duval's defense attorney's mouth would water over that. But Smith contradicted himself too. 
He said the affair with Barb was only a short-lived fling, and he was using her only to get information on the missing hunters. And I got information all night long. <laughs> all night. All night long. Sorry. And then just to make sure, I'd go back and get a little more. Yep. Information. And I would sneak away and turn my headlights on down the road a little ways. Mission okay, complete. Someone saw me getting that information. <laughs> First off, the affair had lasted a year and was at least semi-serious. Barb had pictures of Smith opening Christmas presents at her house. She literally had dick pics. <laughs> Get it? And he had promised to leave his wife to marry her. Secondly, why would he have been using Barb for intel when just one minute earlier he claimed she was always crazy and you couldn't believe a word from her? Uh, See there? Oh, yeah. There we go. Exactly. The story's falling apart. It never was together, but yeah. It's BS. It is. Now Bronco was thinking more in terms of what a prosecutor would need during a trial, and verifying Barb's account and her credibility was pretty important. So on January 25th, Bronco enlisted the help of Trooper Douglas Go, Ga, Go, and met with Barb to conduct a little experiment. Remember the night the hunters went missing when Ronnie Emery snuck out of Barb's house and said he witnessed the hunters being beaten to death? He just from the bats? Yes. He described the sound of bats bouncing off their heads as a ping, and Barb claimed that she had heard it even from the house nearly a quarter mile away. Douglas walked to the clearing where Ronnie said the murders took place. He brought along an aluminum bat and a frozen gallon jug of water. They're doing a little Bill Nye the Science Guy out in the woods. Bill Nye the Science Guy. Ping, ping. Pink. Oh, no. very nice. Very no, that's nice. horrible, actually. But Well, I know, but it, it was topical. Perfect. <laughs> Bronco and Barb remained in the house, with the windows open and the television on, the same conditions as that night in 1985. Yeah. They also had uh, cheers on. That's what they... Oh, there kidding. we go. I don't yeah. know. This all sounds Matlockish. Yeah. Yeah. Let's do that. Yeah. It does. I mean, if you ever watch Matlock, at the end, he'll kind of prove things... It's scientifically, yeah. or disproof. You're right. Yeah. Anyway, I don't know if you guys are Matlock fans. <laughs> I'm just going to bunch of guys that were little kids when it was on. Oh, I followed Andy Griffiths. Yeah, okay. Yay! I guess I am right. I followed his career all the way from Mayberry. Yeah. Never stopped. Yeah. So he'd be like, are you telling me that? And then he would yeah. do a little demonstration? Yeah. I love it. I prefer the commish a few years later. Oh, you do? Yeah, but I like Matlock as well. Yeah. yeah. Perry Mason also was very good. Matlock was one of those shows when you stayed home from school, you had a stomach flu or whatever. It was on like in the afternoon. I'd always watch it. I watch Price is Right, sleep a little bit, wake up, watch some Matlock, and then mom and dad come home. It's like, because that's all you could could watch. That was it. Yeah. Right? Oh, pretty, yeah. You like know, two or three soap operas. <laughs> soap operas are poison. Oh, yeah. Like, I, I will, if I hear a soap opera and I hear them start talking and I'm at home doing something, i like, where's the remote? I have to turn it off. So they're doing the experiment, right? Bronco and Barb are in the house, and this other dude takes the, the frozen jug of water down there, and, and uh, then he begins to just strike it with the, with the aluminum ball bat. Okay, I'm with you. Hits the frozen milk jug with a bat. And screams. And screams. So there's a cop in the middle of the woods by himself, with a ball bat, hitting a frozen jug of water, and going, ah, 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 like that's his assignment. Should have got a pig. Pig's <laughs> anatomically closer to humans. I just think the the frozen, I mean, when I think of head, I don't say, hey, you've got, your head's very similar to a frozen milk jug. That's true. I don't know. I, I guess I'm nitpicking. Well, no, no. I mean, if you want to get super scientific about it. That seems like it'd be a lot louder. Sam's an audio file. Hopefully you mean seem a- like that would be a lot different. Frozen milk jug and a brain or a skull. 
I hope you mean a dead pig, by the way. Yeah. The no, way. I mean I a dead so. pig. I okay. think a frozen milk jug is yeah. going to be more of a thunk. Yeah. Than a, yeah. Because it's a solid. A skull is going to be a, like, have a ting to it. Yeah. In a crunch. It's ting cr- in a crunch. God, that's creepy. Yeah. I don't but know. A milk jug, want... yeah, it's going to sound more like hitting, like, a basketball. Yeah. I would think. So he, like, hits it twice, and he's like, ah! It's like, do you hear that? <laughs> Look, we have to address this because we're looking we're looking at this forensically now. Can you hit a head with a baseball bat that many times to ping before the I'm thinking two or three hard strikes and and it, you're going to be hitting like the consistency of like a bag of jello or something. Yeah, yeah. and it, it yeah. just seems like there's n- I don't know, I just think there's no part of the body you could hit that would maybe ping that loud. Joe, let's go hit you with a bat and see how loud it is. <laughs> Guys, we'll be right back. I'm literally going to take one for the team. I watch a lot of YouTube videos where they test things, and I'm totally blown away a lot of the times. Even the slow-mo guys like, we're going to do this and blow this thing up and, you know, billion frames a second or whatever. And it's totally different than I thought it'd look. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I'm talking out of my butt right now. <laughs> it's a good point, though. It's yeah, a good it point. is. I just, just thought I'd with throw the that out there. Well, after a few minutes, he walked back to the house where Bronco and Barb were waiting. They could hear him as clear as day, they said. Okay. The experiment was a rousing success, and directly after that came more good news. Michael Bloomer called to say he had subpoenas for Barb, Connie Sunberg, and Rocky Harmon to be served in March. Bronco placed a happy call to the Tills and Ogenins, who were relieved to hear some long-awaited good news. I wonder if they recorded that and played it. In the court, that would be smart. I don't think they did, but they should have, yeah. They record nothing. No. Every cop needs some good video and audio equipment. I'm going to say that. I bet they do have that now. Like, they need that Zoom microphone. You never know when that thing would come in handy. I know. Donna Mendes not brought to you by Zoom microphones. <laughs> Even the old-fashioned little tape recorder with the cassette tape could have could have maybe recorded that. <laughs> Note to self, you know. Yeah. Like the one that the guy had that was in the last section of Virgil. Uh, at the very end, almost of uh, what's that movie? Core, the core. Remember? I can't remember that? Oh, movie. it's one of my favorite movies. I've seen it like twenty times. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Yeah, man. So that's the end of part four. Now, listen. How many parts are there? There's going to be. I think we're going to do a really, really long finale to this. Okay. Next. Next time. Okay. So there's going to be one more part. There's going to be a fifth part. And it's going to be very, very lengthy. Uh, I've got a lot of notes, but I don't want to try to... It's not quite enough to split into two more episodes, but it is enough to make one really, really long-ass episode. So I think it's probably what we'll do. Okay. And, uh, so, yeah, we will officially wrap this thing up next week. All right. Sounds good. Let me tell you about some fellas I know named Ivan, Sam, and Joe. They got themselves a little podcast, you know. They talk about everything under the sun That they find interesting, spooky, or fun They sure ain't trying to impress no one The remedy to too much time on your hands is Take a little listen to the dawn of Manti They talk about killers, monsters, and cults French mates from hell, disappeared folks. Occasionally throw in a few dad jokes. 
They try to make every story extra nice by adding their own ginger spice. Not one time or two, but thrice. Right, 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 right. The remedy to too much time on you ends is take a little listen to the dawn of Manti. Now I'm sure these fellas will be around for quite a spell. There sure ain't no shortage of stories to tell Cause this old world's as weird as hell But hell, even if nobody listened You know they'd maintain a fine disposition Cause shooting the breeze is kind of their mission The remedy to too much time on your ends Is take a little listen to the dawn of Manti Too much time on your hands is take a little listen to the dawn of Manti.